because there's always discipline when you're when you're trying to go against the grain. And so I requested, I had let administration know that I no longer wanted to partake in those things and I wanted to be removed. I wanted to go to a, a SNY yard, which is special needs yard. And and they understood. They understood that I was already on the journey, um, and that I no longer wanted to partake and that there was these heavy repercussions. I mean, potentially death. You know, I know it sounds kind of like uh, like severe, but that's what it can get to. If you don't want to partake in the, the politics, they don't just allow you to stay, you know, there, living there. They call it, they call it dead weight. Welcome to Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart. This is Carrie Morrison. Since 2020, I have had the pleasure to know Adrian Baruman, whom I met just prior to the start of the pandemic when I was touring Twin Towers, part of the LA County jail system. Adrian and his partner, Craig and Armstrong, were the first inmate mental health assistants living and working within two pods, which represented an innovation in what is referred to as the Forensic Inpatient Program Step-Down Program, or FIP. This innovative program was spearheaded by LA County Correctional Health Services and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and represents a more compassionate, restorative, and human-centered approach to caring for the most seriously mentally ill inmates, referred to as patients, in the LA County Jail. Many are awaiting a bed in the state hospital system as they have been determined incompetent to stand trial for either their misdemeanor or felony violations. This is the second time I've been able to interview Adrian for the Heart Forward podcast. You might want to check out Episode 5 in Season 1, where, with the support of LASD, I was able to interview both him and Cragen regarding their roles as inmate mental health assistants in a Zoom interview. I am privileged to have the opportunity to volunteer in the FIP Step Down, and honestly, I see it as evidence of the transformative impact of practicing radical hospitality. Since its inception in 2017, and with the support of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors in LASD and Correctional Health, the program has grown to care for, at any given time, approximately 200 patients, and the number of inmate mental health assistants has grown to 13. Because the inmate mental health assistants at LA County Jail are awaiting judicial action with respect to their own cases, in each case they are awaiting either a trial or facing prison terms for violent offenses, they may be available to serve in this capacity for an extended period of time. Each mental health assistant I have spoken with values this opportunity to serve their peers in the jail and appreciate the redemptive nature of this program. Adrian is the second inmate mental health assistant to head to prison to serve his sentence, and because we have known each other since 2020 and stay in communication, I asked if he would be willing to describe the journey he is on now, facing a sentence of 25 years to life. In this first of a two-part interview, Adrian will describe his role as an inmate mental health assistant in the FIP step-down, and will also describe his journey leaving Twin Towers and entering the state prison system. We recorded this interview over two separate days because of the challenges of maintaining a phone connection, and I trust you will be patient with the variations in sound quality, the audio delays, and the interruptions from Global Tellink. We had to string together many, many calls because each phone call lasts only 15 minutes. Here is part one of the interview. Unknown caller. Here we go. This is Carrie. This is Global Tellink. 
You have a prepaid call from an inmate at the Calipatria State Prison, Calipatria, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Adrian. Hey, Carrie. How you doing? I'm doing good. Hey, happy holidays. Did you have a good Christmas? Uh, you know what? Um, I was actually sharing with one of the guys that every day seems like it's Christmas because I'm always motivated. Oh. <laughs> That's such a good attitude. Uh, I know it's kind of corny. On Christmas, I did the same thing that I do just about every day. I wake up, I get into the studies, I read, I write, um, listen to good music, eat good food. What is a Christmas dinner uh, in Calipatria State Prison? So this Christmas, they gave us uh, like a, a roast beef soup. They gave us a pumpkin pie, um, some potatoes, sweet potatoes, some vegetables. It's not too bad. It's a it tastes okay. The, the roast beef soup is pretty good. Adrian, you strike me as someone who, you, you see the glass is half full. I really appreciate that about you. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think we get so wrapped up finding all the the negative negative things in life. And I think I think it's okay when you when you when you want to create solutions and get straight to it and be proactive. But that's not really a, a quality that so many people have. So I try to just you know be optimistic. I think you're right. Well, you know what? We are recording this right now. I'm. Uh at my studio with my able technician, Aaron, listening in. So I just want to, um, again, seek your permission to record this interview for the next perhaps about an hour. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that's fine. Okie doke. That's fine. Hi, hi Aaron. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> He's waving at you. Yeah. So here's what I, here's what I want to do, Adrian. I know I know we are, we're establishing right now that you are at Calipatria State Prison, you are serving your, your prison sentence, and we're going to return back to that in a few minutes because I want to I want to kind of start with where you and I met, and then we will trace our steps back to your current situation. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. So I remember meeting you, Adrian, in February 2020. Uh, I was uh, shadowing one of the chaplains, a uh, volunteer chaplain at at Twin Towers, and she brought me into uh, 141 ENF Pod uh, to meet you and Craig and Armstrong. At, at that time, you were the only two mental health assistants in what was considered a pilot program at Twin Towers, and uh, you were you were working as a as a mental health assistant, an inmate mental health assistant. So can you describe for me, when I met you in 2020, what were you and Cragen doing and what was that program? I would, I would say we were, we were assisting. We were assisting our peers. Um, I, think, I think we had initially went, went to that location and were there to help people. Um, we were there to help the education, education department. They, they had classes. Um, we had come from the educational uh, floors in the county jail, the 5,000 floors. 
And over in, in those floors, we were uh, like teacher's aides. We were we were what they called Barrett Masters. Um, so we had come from over there, and we were placing these pods to assist education. I just want to interrupt. So in in the other part of the jail, were you at Men's Central Jail? Uh, where and that was was that the education based incarceration program you were part of? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that was education based incarceration. And when you moved into Twin Towers, the the inmates there were different. They were people um, living with mental illness. Uh, some of them actually just considered patients because they were under the care of of the. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They were under the care of correctional health services, right? So it's a different type of inmate peer that you were living with. Everybody there was diagnosed with a severe mental illness. Believe it or not, they they weren't even called patients at at that time. Uh, that was just something we kind of took up. We thought we thought it was important to to relate to custody, as well as take like more of a care approach when we were treating the guys. Because, I mean, if you really think about it, that they were they were diagnosed with a severe mental illness, and because of the symptoms or because of the lack of medication or the lack of treatment. They were acting on these symptoms. I, I would say every person that I've met and I heard their story, they were either off medication, have an episode, or they just happened to be uh, mistreated. And whoever was treating them, whether it was custody or some some form of care, they didn't know how to properly work with them. So every every patient that I had spoke to that I had heard their story. They had an episode, or we had reacted or responded uh, in a wrong manner, and so they were placed into custody. And and that was kind of like uh, one of the, the root causes for us to advocate for them, because uh, a lot of them were being mistreated, or I guess you can say uh, misunderstood. <laughs> that's, a, that's a better way of saying it. You know, it strikes me when you and and Cragen started in that role, and I think you started actually before Cragen, right? You were the first one. Yes. Well, the the first one out of the the inmate mental health assistance. I think uh, there there definitely was a, a few guys before us, as far as myself. But but like I said, the original the original idea was to have a merit master, which somebody which was somebody who came from education. A merit master was placed in these pods to assist education. Of course, mental health, who was running the pilot program, they they were the ones giving directives like, hey, uh, you can give these guys treats after they take their medication, things like that. But uh, when when I had lived there and Cragen, you know, when we finally collaborated, we were the ones who who kind of formulated this idea of being a mental health assistant and, and defined a, a role, created a role. And that was that was pretty much because we were creating like a, an identity for ourselves. We were already living there with the guys, assisting them. A lot of the things that weren't being related to the doctors, we would uh, step up and try to relate these things. I mean, you had a lot of guys in there who who didn't want to speak to mental health, or you had uh, like custody coming through and they didn't really understand the severity of their mental illnesses. So. We believe that that was our opportunity to stand up and kind of like bridge that gap so that the guys can receive effective treatment as well as custody can do their job the best they can. 
Let me paint a picture of those early days. One of you was in an E-pod, one was an F-pod, and you each had, you were living with perhaps 20 to 24 patients in those pods each, right? Yep, yeah. And so you're there 24-7, and were it not for your presence there to to kind of oversee and, and care for these men, they would be, if they were let out, they'd be chained to a piece of furniture on other floors that would happen, or they'd be in their cell for the vast majority of the day. So by virtue of you being there, they were afforded more freedom and an ability to interact and socialize with each other. And one of the things I love hearing about the early days that you and Cragen went through, here you guys were living there 24-7 with these patients who were, you know, in, in various stages of their mental illness or adapting to medication. And in the early days, the clinicians wouldn't even ask you their your opinion for how did someone sleep or how is someone doing or is but you said there was finally one psychiatrist who started to stop and talk to you guys and that changed everything can you can you describe how that happened i think living with the guys they were experiencing experiencing symptoms and then as was uh, a lot of these guys needed uh, adjustments to the medications um a lot of these guys had labels where custody didn't want to want to interact with them. So when we started to see this, we were trying to find any way we can to relate information to help these guys get either the medication they needed, any kind of adjustments, or be given like the benefit of doubt and given an opportunity to come out. There was one doctor. I think this was just her brilliance. You know, she was a brilliant doctor. I think when doctors really want to help, they're going to do all they need to figure things out and to identify certain things. With her, it's, it almost seemed natural. She seen us as an asset to her, and so she would ask us questions about patients. She knew we lived with them 24-7, and uh, she right away put to use any information that we had. And I think in some sense, we, we wanted to do that too. So it was perfect. It worked out perfect. Um, I think when she started to realize that we weren't, just trying to be some sort of a credible source or she's seen that the information we held was very valuable and she was seeing the differences in adjustments when she was adjusting medication. She was seeing the difference in behaviors. She was seeing the, the difference in the program, the use of force, all these different things. She seemed like that we really wanted to help and she would even give us advice. Yeah. That was in those early years. You 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 entered that pod in perhaps 2016? Uh, 2017. 2017, okay. And then, you know, before you, you left, and we'll talk about when you left in a few moments, but over the years, the, the clinicians began to actually confer with you regularly about your impressions and suggestions on how to care for people, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so what she what she did was she started to uh, encourage the other doctors and other uh, staff to to use us. Um, I think we even made it known to her that you know we really just want to help. We're living with these guys. Some of the symptoms that they're they're experiencing are uh, affecting the whole population as well as herself. I mean, we used to live right next to a guy, so if he decided to stay up for nights banking or uh, experiencing, you know, any kind of hallucinations, we were, we were living it with them. So, um, that played a huge role in wanting to, to encourage the, the mental health staff, uh, to help them the way they needed to help. She definitely did that. She advocated for us 
And then I think we still hit kind of like a wall because some of them were skeptical about it. And so she would encourage us to, uh, to formulate documents. There was also other doctors as well that, that uh, encouraged us to formulate some sort of a document on. You have 60 seconds remaining. And really just make it available, make it available for, uh, for the other staff. You want me to call you back? Yeah. Can you do that? I'll be standing yeah, by. I'll, I'll call right back. Thank you. You know, there was an article in the Los Angeles Times uh, a few weeks ago. I know you maybe haven't seen it. You've probably heard about it. And it featured the, men- the mental health assistance and what's called the Forensic Inpatient Program, the FIP Step Down, that you, you helped to get started and now is expanded to the sixth floor and has 13 mental health assistants. That's amazing. It's a, a testament to all yeah, the good work you did. Great. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, you know, there's a quote in the, in the newspaper, uh, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, um, this is a quote from you. I know the reporter, Tom Kerwin, called you, and you said, of those early days, I never not once knew anything about schizophrenia or the severity of bipolar where somebody can be happy and loving and then hating you and wanting to kill you. <laughs> so you and, and Cragen had to learn... Uh, you know, on the job learning. And I know you did a lot to self-teach yourself about mental illness. How did you go about doing that? Because by the end, you were both, you are both very, very well uh, schooled in this, in this space. First and foremost, I, you know, I want to give a shout out to uh, Sarah Tong, Miss Sarah Tong. Yeah. She, she was a psych tech at that time. Um, she, she kind of overseen, she overseen the pods. Um, I, I, from what I understand, it was it was really her idea that initiated a lot of the things. Um, but she became our main resource. So a lot of the things that we needed, we would go and ask her. Um, we did a lot of self-study where we would ask the doctors or anybody willing to talk to us in mental health. We would have these questions just from experience. Maybe uh, maybe there was, an, there was a, a patient experiencing some, some kind of symptoms, we would write it down. Or if it was like in an approach, trying to figure out an approach, me and Cragen would get together and talk about these things. Um, we did start to order books. We would receive books, um, have our family purchase books for us and uh, read up on a bunch of different things. Um, one of the doctors actually encouraged us to get the DSM. And so that kind of turned us, turned us on to a lot of different things. Um, and from there, we just were reading anything, um, we would get together and talk about these things. And, and it's, it's crazy because a lot of like the book stuff we knew, we just didn't know in formal, uh, uh, like actual terminology. So it's like we witnessed the stuff, you know, we experienced the stuff. We just didn't know what to call it. And so when we put them together, it was like, it all made sense. So Adrian, when I, when I met you in 2020, um, it was a month before the pandemic kicked in and we were able to, get exchanged, you know, contact information. And I remember you and Cragen mentioned that you had been working on a book uh, to document your role as mental health assistants and to document all that you had learned and this curriculum that you had developed to, that you would use to, to teach uh, the, the patients. And so um, describe, describe for me 
the motivation behind that book and what were you hoping to achieve with that book? So I think the biggest, the biggest thing was, uh, getting, getting, uh, like an intention brought to who we were. I think, um, I think, you know, from history, I think there's, there's been a lot of, uh, like conniving and, uh, people, people getting over. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to relate this. So, so being incarcerated, trying to advocate for your peers, I think in the past, you know, there's always been some, some kind of malicious intent. And so I think mental health and, uh, custody have always been cautious about things like that. And so when we were really trying to advocate for the guys and help them get the things they needed or make the environment better, there, there always seemed like, like if we had a hidden, a hidden agenda, and so it would be difficult to get the support we needed. And so I think like the number one reason why we put this book together was we wanted them to take us serious. We wanted them to see like we're really here trying to define ourselves and and not for us, but for the purpose of helping the guys. I mean it was a it was a personal reward to seeing the guys, you know, thrive. I think uh that's what a lot of people miss. We also wanted to create a role that held some sort of uh, credibility. So um, being a violent offender, um, I am convicted of violence. I think there is a lack of opportunity for people who are incarcerated. Now, in no way am I saying we deserve, you know, we deserve some sort of uh, opportunity. But I think that opportunity in the, in the Twin Towers, working with guys who are mentally ill, given the bit of trust that I was given and the opportunity to to thrive and grow and create things that were for the purpose of helping other people. I think in that moment of my life, it really transformed a lot of things for me. Um, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home and I have been through a lot of traumas. And I think a lot of that played a role in, you know, my behaviors and my choices and my uh, self-destruction this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And so I think one of the biggest reasons why uh, we also wanted to create some sort of credibility for this role was to encourage other people as well as create something where other guys who were considered violent or facing violent charges or even convicted of violence can part partake in and have their personal transformation. I mean, there's something about responsibility and a mixture of dealing with guys who are either mentor or emotionally uh, dealing with, with issues. Um, there's something about that that really helped me change my life. Uh, everything from living with them to having to communicate with them to even just the, the realization of how blessed I am, you know, to, to wake up every morning and and not be battling something so so grave, you know? So I think that was like one of, uh, those are the two main reasons for the, the compilation of all our work, putting it into a book format. Yeah, I would say um, I have the privilege to volunteer at Twin Towers every week, and I have been there since uh, early 2022. In fact, I saw you before you left for prison. And um, I have heard a similar uh, kind of self-awareness and epiphany shared by the other uh, mental health assistants who, like you say, are facing potentially long prison sentences for violent crimes. And they talk about the importance of 
uh, giving back and of of having a sense of of purpose to show um, to, 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 to as, a, as a path toward redemption. And that's, I think, been one of the most powerful yeah, things sure. I've observed also. You know, Adrian, in that article, again, the, the article that you haven't had a chance to see, but there was another quote that you shared about um, how you, you changed as a person in this role. You said, quote, I knew nothing about my feelings. I was raised not to be thinking about them, so I never knew how to empathize or communicate what I felt. But you said that this experience turned all of that around. Why do you think inmates should be given yeah. this kind of chance, whether it's in the jail system or in the prison system? So, so it's one thing. It's one thing for somebody to be uh, incarcerated for a life term, where there's uh, there's a possibility for them to re-enter society. But of course, being in prison, right? Um, and then there's another thing where somebody is going to prison or uh, county jail and going to have to serve a term and get out and re-enter society. Um, I think it's very, very important that we understand our emotions. I think, I mean, you can see it all through the world, even in the business realm. I think there's a huge shift, right, where there's this in emotional intelligence that holds like a, a, a an importance, right? I think they even prefer that you're emotionally intelligent before you even have a credential, <laughs> you know, in some, some kind of uh, college or... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. This this opportunity, it, it does that. It requires you to, to dig deep down and, and feel. There's, there's no longer uh, being reactive or impulsive based off your nature. It's questioning. Kind of like uh, uh, the philosopher Socrates, when, when they created these ways of going and figuring things out, they would question. So I think having to deal with your emotions and question the moment. On top of that, you want to be effective. You want to help your peer. You want to produce something that is positive. You don't want to create destruction. You don't want to hurt nobody. You want to see the process work. And that's what this opportunity has done for myself, and I think it can do for many other people. As far as reintegrating and, and going back to society, reentering society, I think that's like a a, a major, like a, a it's a it's a it should be a requirement, <laughs> you know. So it, it should you, be required that you learn about your emotions. I mean, emotional intelligence. There are, like you say, people in prominent places of business who I would consider to be emotionally not particularly intelligent. So that the pathway to yeah. achieve that that type of equilibrium is different for everyone. But I guess, are, would it be fair to say that were it not for this opportunity you had to serve as a mental health assistant, you you might not be in the place you, you are today? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I probably would have took a different path. I mean, I, 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 true, I truly believe in, in like a destiny. I, I, I believe that, um, you know, the process is perfect, right? I believe that that for my life, you know, I, I definitely have a, a bigger purpose and things work out the way they do for a, a certain reason. Um, I don't believe that I would have gotten uh, to where I am today without getting to that though. Um, I think that 
I think that being being put in a uh, in an environment where people don't care about feelings, where there's a stigma, right? There's a stigma not to feel. Where there's just there's just an idea uh, where you shouldn't be emotional, that you should be violent. Um, when you're placed in an environment like that, it's very difficult to deal with your emotions. I mean, I'm I'm here. I've been in prison for uh, over a year now. Um, in Calipatria, and I got to tell you, like, I, I have a hard time sometimes being here because the environment isn't fit to fill, right? Right. It's not created. Everybody here isn't on the same path to go and, hey, how are you feeling today? It's more of like, man, just get it and go. Keep keep moving. Everybody for themselves. I mean, you do have a camaraderie, but it, it's very less likely that you're going to hear somebody you're going to hear somebody or see somebody crying or very less likely hear somebody or see somebody saying, Hey man, I love you, man. Or let me acknowledge you. Those things, they just don't happen in the, in the system. And I shouldn't say they don't happen at all because there is, there's, there's starting to be a huge shift in the system. Right. And many people are starting to become more aware and they're learning how to, work out the traumas, which requires you to dig deep and feel. Let's shift now and tell the story of leaving Twin Towers, because I haven't actually heard this entire story. Um, You know, we're not going to go into the details of of your past. You know, anyone who wants to Google your name can read the newspaper. But I know that you did commit your crime in 2013 as a juvenile, and you were incarcerated for nine years until there was an opportunity to either have a trial or a plea deal. And what did you end up doing after those nine years? So uh, we did we did uh, stipulate. I myself uh, took a plea. I did plea out uh, a first-degree murder. Um, I know it sounds kind of crazy, you know, like who takes a deal for a first-degree murder? I was just willing to, to take accountability for my choices, um, as well as, you know, we did come to an agreement because I, I had other things uh, in in the higher courts that we were awaiting responses for. Um, and so part of that deal was that we would have time to, to get an, a response before I was sentenced and shipped off. Um, that That didn't really play out the way we uh, thought it was it was going to so i i remember i think your your court hearing was december 2021 when you were sentenced and in early 2022 we were talking about whether you would want to or be willing to stay at LA County Twin Towers for a portion of your sentence even to continue your work as a mental health assistant um, if that, this call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. If that would be allowed, I mean, that would be a radical departure. The uh, California Department of Corrections Re- and Rehabilitation, CDCR, would have to agree to that. L.A. County would have to agree to that. And, and that idea has not um, gone away because I will tell you that a, about a month ago, Supervisor Hilda Solis introduced a motion to the Board of Supervisors asking the county to explore the possibility of allowing mental health assistants who are sentenced to state prison to stay for a portion of their of their term at Twin Towers because the the work they do is so important. 
But you decided that, you know, no matter which way this was going to go, you it was better that you get started on your sentence. And I don't know a lot about the state prison system, and I'm hoping this podcast can enlighten people like me, but there are things, there are benefits to being in prison. There's a lot of downsides, and we'll talk about that as well, but benefits related to education and, you know, accumulating, I guess, points that, you know, help you in your future parole. What were the things that you had to weigh as you made the decision to to head to state prison? So, so I think, um, you know, in the county jail where we were, where we were living, um, that program had evolved so much that there was a comfort level to it. I mean, we had, we had custody, we had mental health staff, we had, we had built a team, um, as well as, you know, Craig and Craig is like my brother, you know, he's like my family and as well as the other mental health uh, assistants. I mean, we hadn't been together for so long, but I was building bonds with them. It was, it wasn't just a, like, oh, that, that's my uh, fellow coworker. No, I think we were building like a partnership, which, uh, you know, went further than just uh, a coworker. It was like a family thing. Um, and, and I could honestly say that with, with custody and, and mental health staff, I think we were building this team that was allowing uh, treatment to be affected. All, all of our um, aspirations were starting to move, you know, because we were gaining the support we needed. Um, so I think like that was like the number one thing was that there was, there was the opportunity. Doors were starting to open for more opportunities to, to thrive and grow as an individual, to grow the idea of, creating effective treatment and care for men. And I think um, most of all, um, like, like be, be a person of, you know, redemption of, of giving back, you know, of, of, of trying to redeem myself in my past. So I, I think I, I really had a way all that thing, all, all of that out. Um, I did, I made, I made the choice to leave. Now, I, I I had already knew being in, in the county for nine nine years is unheard of. So, in my mind, I had already knew that the time was coming where I would have to move forward and on with the journey. Um, did I think that it was possible that a state sentence can be served there in the county? I did indeed believe that. Um, I also had this philosophy that hey I can go and branch off and like like men who need assistance aren't just here in the county jail so I think me and Cragen always had this idea that when I left it wouldn't just be left and alright now now it's just going to wither away I think we always planned for if we had to leave and venture out that it would continue to thrive. We were we were in the business of creating leaders. We were the, in the business of, of developing something that would be self-sufficient. I mean, we instilled leadership qualities into our patients. We were we were trying to build the next set of mental health assistants who were diagnosed with severe mental illness. So, I think the idea had already been there. 
that, hey, look, if I have to go, this thing will continue to grow. And, and, and then we'll just be able to go and, and branch off and do more things. I think that is such a wise philosophy. And you should feel very good that your leadership has paid off. Because as I mentioned to you, there are 13 now. And there are, as you describe it, junior mental health assistants, yeah. which are some of the... Um, the patients with mental illness who, who also are helping in the pods. Okay, so paint the picture for me. You've, you've made the decision now to, as you say, to continue on the journey uh, to leave L.A. County Jail after nine years. Where did you go next, and what did that feel like? So I went to a reception center, um, which is in Delano, um, Kern Valley, it was it was uh <laughs> it was nothing I I could have thought of, you know I could have imagined you know it was like it was like it was like moving moving you know to something great and taking a step all the way back um, it was difficult you know I was in this place where you know nobody was nobody nobody was with the same mindset I mean it was very I mean, I didn't meet one dude who who had the mindset of even trying to get home. You know, I kept meeting these guys who were, you know, uh, hopeless, uh, hostile. There's good guys everywhere, but I'm I'm talking about people. People just didn't really care. You know, they didn't really care about their. They just wanted to live the prison life. You know, it was it was violent. It was inconsiderate. Um, you know, drug infested, there was no program. I mean, of course, reception is just a place where you go for a few months, you get your uh, your case reviewed as far as everything, your whole conduct, uh, your age, um, you know, your your uh, offense, your charge. And then they, they figure out this point system and then they go and they place you, you know, in a prison that they believe you need to be in. I was just going to ask a question, you know, you and Craigan have taught me a lot. I'm a, I'm naive about the state prison system, and I've learned through you and, and through others since that time. But I remember you guys telling me about the politics in, in in not only in the jail, but in the prison system. And I naively thought, well, we're talking about American politics. And you said, no, no, no. We're talking about prison politics, which can be very brutal. And... Um, yeah. So, I mean, when you when you talk about the fact that they are deciding like what group you fall in or what category and what you know what decisions you have to make, can you be a little bit more explicit about what what they're looking for? I mean, upon arrival, even even uh, even custody, you know, CDCR asked me, "Hey, are you uh, Sudanio, Norteño, you know, Hispanic, white? Uh, what what do you run?" And of course, some. I'm considered a, a, a Southerner. You know, I'm Mexican. I run with the Southerners. Um, I mean, that's that's what CDCR. Now, that's a whole different ball game when you come into the prison system and you're on a tier of 50, you know, 20, 50 guys, um, and you run into, you know, people who are running the show there. Um, you know, if you're a Sudanian, you go with your with your kind, and there's rules. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of racial segregation. Um, of course, there's a lot of rules in play because there's everything from drugs to weapons uh, to to holding some sort of power. You know, as far as like on the yard or within the prison. 
So yeah, that was like a, a huge thing. I was going to say, I think you told me a story, and I don't know if this was at the, the reception area in Kern County or if this happened when you came to prison, but already they they were tempting you or, or challenging you to show your your worth or your allegiance. And you told me the story about the old man. Did, did that happen in Kern County? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that happened in the reception center. Um, so, so this is the thing. They have these non-designated yards um, where they're lower level yards. Um, and they're, what they do on these yards is they put people who are um, not mainline and they merge them. And so being at, at, at the reception center that I was, uh, an individual who came from one of these yards, which are quote-unquote considered no good, um, they didn't want him, they didn't want him in our building. So the issue was he's considered no good and he can't be amongst our population. So they wanted to remove him, which... They wanted to take a, a violent action to get him out of the yard. Now, I had been told that I needed to help with that. I asked, who is this person? Being, being the brave man I thought I was, I thought I can go and help this guy just walk off the yard. So he doesn't have to, you know, get any violence against him. This happened to be a young, uh, like a, a little old man. One of the guys, it reminded me of one of the guys that we worked with in the, in the uh, Twin Towers. So I told the person who was uh, informing me. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I told him that I would walk him off the yard, that I would let him know that, look, you can't be here, that you're going to get hurt here. So you just got to leave. And I would walk him off the yard. They didn't like that. I ended up getting disciplined for that. That kind of went against their policy, politics, um, their rules, and so I got disciplined for that. How were you disciplined? Yeah, two individuals ran inside my cell, you know, and there was, uh, you know, some some mutual combat. Um, I mean, you know, of course, you know, being 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 that I'm like on my journey of recovery and uh, no longer wanting to be violent or do anything like that, it. It kind of set me back. You know, I felt bad. I felt all these ways that I, I wouldn't normally feel, you know, being involved in, in, in that type of, uh, in those types of things. So, um, it made me, it made me rethink, you know. You have 60 seconds remaining. It made me, it made me rethink how far I set myself back and how far I still needed to go. So, you know, since I've been learning more about the prison system, what I've learned is that situations like you experienced actually can really set people back. You know, you 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 might end up. You, you it could have it could have gone bad for you. You could have gotten seriously hurt or worse, or you could have been punished by the by the system for engaging in something that would actually compromise your your sentence. So, it's a pretty scary situation you're in, and and so. Tell me about then being then moving then to Calipatria. I will say that people who we we have discussed your situation with, you know, folks who care for you here in LA County, and they said that it, they felt it was always unfortunate 
that CDCR did not take into consideration all the years that you were in county jail with no, you know, behavioral issues, no infractions, and then this incredible service that you provided. And yet they they ended up um, putting you in what they call a level four yard. So for those who don't know what that is, what, what, are, what are these levels in the state prison system and why are they significant? So, so it starts out with a level four, um, which is the highest level. They do have a higher level, which is a level four, a 180, which a 180 is, is the only difference is the design. So where they can see, where they can see more. Um, I'm on a, a, a level four, which is, a, I think, a 270, which is just the, the, the design structure. But any kind of level four is, uh, is more, um, um, how would you say it? Where they control things, right? You got the doors, it's cell living, uh, two-man cell. They control the doors. They open them and close them. Um, like here in Calipatria, your lights stay on all night. Um, they only run half of the buildings at a time. So it's either top tier or bottom tier, which runs program. Um, like you will never see both of the tiers, you know, the bo- bottom and top running program at the same time. Um, it's just a lot more controlling. Now you do have like, like, a uh, solitary confinement units, which were ASU, which turned to RHU. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Those are like restrictive house, restricted housing units where, uh, you know, those are far worse than, than level four because you really just don't have any, uh, um, I'd say like any access to, you know, certain things. Um, so level four is like the highest level. Then it goes down to level three, to a level two, to a level one. And you have like camps. Um, but really the, the level system is just access. So as you go down in levels, you have more access. There's more programs. Um, there's a lot more, uh, uh, how would you say, responsibility or... You just, you just, you're trusted a little more as your level goes down. Me, I, when, when I came to prison, they didn't, they didn't really care about any of the certificates that I earned. I had over 40 certificates. And, and then of course, you know, I, I helped, uh, you know, uh, create, co-create the, the, the position and help establish the fifth step down. But they, they didn't really consider any of that. And, and I, I find it, I find it kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of strange because they they will indeed look at your disciplinary history. If you're in the county jail and you have write-ups, they will they will use that to add points to the system. And the higher your points go, then the higher level you have to be on. Me, because I had a life term, because of my age, because of those kind of factors, all of that made me... Uh, Following the points where I landed on a, a, a level four. And what did it? So what, if they would have considered like any kind of certificates, anything like that, that could have deducted points and that could have helped me go to a lower level. But because they didn't consider any of that stuff, they, they actually said none of that stuff matters. But the county and the state are two different things. Then 
I had to come to a level four. And like I said, it's really strange because they would use your disciplinary history, but they won't use the good things that you've done. You know? I hope anybody who's thinking about CDCR reform will will hear will hear this story, Adrian. Um, so, what were the politics like in level level four prison life at Calipatria? Oh yeah, so so I mean, you can you can Google. <laughs> I think you can Google or look on YouTube. Calipatria, Calipatria is uh, it's infamous. They're they're. Calipatria is known for being one of the most dangerous prisons. They say it's not as bad as it used to be, but it, for sure, it's definitely bad. Uh, I mean, you could feel the tension just coming into the building, you know. I mean, amongst the amongst the politics, you know, amongst amongst the uh, the Hispanics, for me, it was real welcoming. But of course, you know, anything that's given to you is something that's going to be required from you. So, for sure, all these little things, you know, you can feel. You can feel it. It was tense. Um, I know when I arrived, people right away asked me about where I was at, um, where I had come from. And some people even already knew. It was, it was it kind of blew my mind. They already knew some of the things that I was doing. And um, right off the bat, because I was working with mental health and because I was involved in, in writing books and helping people who are mentally ill, that has always been frowned upon as far as the politics. You know, even on the main line, you know, outside of the Twin Towers, the general population, you know, you're, it, it had always been a stigma and it had been frowned on. It, it was discouraged. You weren't allowed to fill out a form to get checked, you know, to have some mental health uh, support. Um, I think now it's starting to shift a little more, but Coming from all of that um, and coming to a level four Calipatria State Prison, a lot of these these uh, these men, right, were kind of skeptical about who I was. And and pretty much they didn't favor me at all. You know, they, it was very difficult. I felt a lot of friction. There was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, opposition. I, I had even, you know, because my plans were to bring a lot of the curriculum and create other people who would like to be mental health assistants, build them up into leaders, create some sort of programming here in the prison. But right off the back, I was having a lot of opposition and not, not so much from administration, but in, in first by my own peers and my own fellow mates, you know? So that, that was very difficult. And I actually decided to leave, which I'm still in prison but I'm no longer on the main line, which is, is quote unquote in the politics considered the good side, right? So describe that. The main line is the general population, but you asked to be removed from that for your safety. Am I am I thinking that would be the reason? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so my concern was that I no longer wanted to be a part of the destructive lifestyle. I no longer wanted to be involved in the politics. Now. Being that I spent about five years uh, in the program that we had developed, and uh, uh, that lifestyle had shifted me so much that I, when I came to prison, I didn't feel like I was, uh, I, I felt out of place, you know, and I didn't want to submit to the politics, and I didn't want to abide by some, some of the things, you know, like being hostile, kind of like I described in the story. Uh, having to go and remove somebody from the from the yard, I didn't want to partake in those things. 
And I knew that there was repercussions if I denied or I refused because there's always discipline when you're, when you're trying to go against the grain. And so I requested, I had let administration know that I no longer wanted to partake in those things and I wanted to be removed. I wanted to go to a, a SNY yard, which is special needs yard. And, and they understood, they understood that I was already on the journey. Um, and that I no longer wanted to partake in that there was these heavy repercussions. I mean, potentially death, you know, I know it sounds kind of like, uh, like severe, but that's what it can get to. If you don't want to partake in the, the politics, they don't just allow you to stay, you know, there living there. They call it, they call it dead weight. That's what it's called. Hmm. If you cannot contribute to their quote unquote cause. And I say them as the politics, if you cannot be a part of that or you no longer want to be a part of that then what happens is you get repercussions and even if I was just on this talking about this and I was still on the main line I can I can be disciplined for it I mean potentially death like I said um, so I, I requested to leave and they placed me on uh, you know in Calipatria they, they placed me on an SNY yard and Little do people know is that there's the same structure here than it that it is over there. There's still politics. The only difference is you come over here with an agenda. You can come over here and you could decide to say, "Hey, I no longer want to do that. I'm being my own man, and I'm a, I'm sincere about my rehabilitation, and people will respect it. They won't make a mockery of it if if you were to say that in the in the main line. That's that is something to be shunned, the fact that you actually want to improve your life. Yeah, exactly. So, Adrian, tell me about what is a day in the life of Adrian Baruman now? Like, what time do you wake up? What do you do? What's your cell like? And, and let me just say this. I, I looked on Google Earth at Calipatria State Prison. Oh, my gosh. That is like in the middle of nowhere, just north of the Mexican border. And I do, I do not see a single tree in that entire complex. Oh yeah, no, yeah, it's it's desert out here. I'm talking about, you know how they said there was a, a severe storm this past week? That storm uh, floated right past us. It didn't even hit us. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can see, we have more to discuss. In the next episode, we'll continue with this discussion about life in prison now for Adrian And we will also discuss his aspirations for the future and some of the very compelling ideas he has for prison reform and caring for people with mental illness upon release from incarceration. One observation I have about Adrian's journey from jail to prison is the fact that he was placed in a yard from the outset that jeopardized his safety. It appears that no consideration was given to the fact that he spent nine years in LA County Jail with no blemish on his record as he awaited trial for a crime that was committed in 2013. At LA County Jail, he served in a sacrificial way for over five years, living with his mentally ill peers 24-7 as a mental health assistant. He received dozens of certificates participating in jail-based education programs and was a merit master. Yet he was placed in a level four yard reserved for prisoners who are prone to violence. I will put a link in the episode notes about the different levels of the California prison system to provide more insight. I would hope that for other inmate mental health assistants who will be heading to state prison, there could be a communication forged between L.A. County Jail and the CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, 
to recognize these accomplishments and positive personal choices when making prison placement decisions. Thank you for your support of this podcast. And if you have not subscribed, please do so. And you will be notified when the second part of this conversation is available to access. See you next week.